Hey everyone, Yamina here. For those of you who didn't know, I spent five years at Rockefeller University in Tom Sackmar's lab. I did have a blast there. Before letting you listen to the regular introduction and the podcast episode, I just want to express my gratitude to Tom for allowing me to work in his team and say thank you to the Sackmar Lab for sponsoring episode 50 of the Dr. GPCR podcast. I'm excited to share this episode with you. Can you believe it? We've reached episode 50. All right, I'm going to let you go. Listen in to the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Again, thank you, Tom, and thank you to the Sackmar Lab for sponsoring this episode. Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few announcements to make. We are working on a new program geared towards transitioning from academia to industry. Powered by Dr. GPCR, our new program is called Life Career Job. The goal is to support you in your efforts to find your next job in industry, plan out your career trajectory, create a life and support the lifestyle that works for you. If you'd like to be notified when this program becomes available, fill out our short survey at lifecareerjob.com. This new ecosystem will also include a new podcast that will be launching in September 2021. Our guests will be scientists, recruiters, and hiring managers, and everything in between. We want to help PhDs find their ideal career path and inspire you with real-life stories. The second edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit will be held from September 13 to 19, 2021. We are planning a combination of live talks, peer-recorded talks, and live workshops. We have a great lineup of live talk speakers, including Dr. Brian Roth, Dr. Patrick Sexton, and Dr. Jurgen Weiss. Also, we are happy to announce that we'll have a live Q&A session with Dr. Bob Lefkowitz and Dr. Randy Hall to talk about GPCR's science and Dr. Lefkowitz's memoir. Visit drgpcr.com summit today to see the full program. We're also launching our GPCR consulting services. You'll soon be able to find the profiles of our carefully selected consultants on our website at drgpcr.com consulting. You'll be able to find the help you need for your company. Stay tuned. Are you subscribed to our YouTube channel? If not, please subscribe today. It's not only a great way to catch up on our recorded events, such as the Dr. GPCR Virtual Cafe, but it's also a great way to support Dr. GPCR. And now, let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR. Today, I have the pleasure of having with me Dr. Tom Sackmar. As many of you know, Tom is uh, one of my former mentors from the Rockefeller University. I had the best five years of my life in New York. Hi, Tom. Hi, Yamina. It's good to see you again. Great to see you again. I think we. Uh, this is our once a year chat, and this time it is recorded. Since I've left <laughs> the lab every year around the same period, I think May or, or June, we get together and, and chat. And today is at the end of last day of April, and I'm glad that we're, we're doing this on the record. Well, it's always good to be on the record. <laughs> Although I do miss the informal off the off the record chats as well. Oh, definitely, definitely. So, can you tell us, tell the audience a little bit about yourself? And I'm sure a lot of people know you, but just for those science, young scientists who's never heard of you, like I haven't heard, I hadn't heard of you before I googled you and sent you an email to uh, ask you if I could join your lab. Uh huh. Well, that's interesting. Um, I was, um, you know, my lab existed before Google, so not everything <laughs> <laughs> you might think is on Google that should be there. But um, yeah, here we are in New York City. Um, I'm sitting in our lab conference room at Rockefeller University, where I've been um, a faculty member since um, August of 1990, so 30 years at Rockefeller. Um, our lab is interested in uh, and has always been interested in transmembrane signaling. We are what I'd call now more, more of a chemical biology lab than anything else, I guess. Our animal budget is zero this year, <laughs> which tells you a little bit about our focus. Um, in, my, in my own career, uh, I started out working on GPCRs before I knew I was working on GPCRs because I was a postdoc in the 80s in Gobin Karana's lab at MIT in the chemistry department. And I was working on uh, the visual pigment rhodopsin. 
Rhodopsin had just literally been cloned, the bovine Rhodopsin and then human Rhodopsin had literally just been cloned uh, as I joined the lab. Um, our lab was one of the labs that cloned the first um, G protein, alpha, beta, and gamma subunits, in this case, for transducin from the retinal rod outer segment. And my mission was to, to express these cDNAs heterologously in mammalian cells, which was no mean feat in uh, 1986. And um, that worked out. Uh, I had a great uh, group of colleagues uh, that I'm still close to, even you know, 35 years later, Dan Oprian and Sri Ram Subramaniam, uh, Roland Frankie, um, people like that, Sadhu Karnik. Um, these folks, uh, you know, we had a team effort, but um, we all had our individual projects. Um, I was lucky that Gobin. Uh, Gobin Karana gave us uh, a certain amount of freedom, you know, day-to-day -day freedom. He wasn't a micromanager, uh, so we could pretty much run with anything we wanted. Although he, uh, he also, of course, was a chemist. And so we were always interested in pushing the technologies in the molecular biology realm. At that time, one of his former students, Mike Smith, had just invented... Um, this mismatch, mismatch primer-based mutagenesis with M13 as the uh, phage that was used to do the site-directed mutagenesis for you could make single missense mutations in your gene of interest. And Gobin was really excited by this strategy. So we worked out that method in, um, in parallel with um, gene synthesis uh, for our genes of interest. So we were doing sort of competing strategies to make the first site-directed mutants of rhodopsin and G-proteins at that time. And I think that, um, I think we did make probably the first mutants of the GPCR. There, there may have been other, uh, of course, there were others out there who were making mutants, uh, Bob Lefkowitz group, um, others, you know, the, the, Richard Dixon, Kathy Strader groups at Merck were doing this. Uh, a few other groups, uh, of course, were interested in making mutants. But um, one advantage we had with Gobin's background was that we started making synthetic genes for the, the proteins that we we're trying to express in HEK cells. In fact, we started expressing things in cost cells. But um, making synthetic genes allowed us to do mutagenesis by restriction fragment replacement because if you make a synthetic gene for your kilobase typical GPCR of interest, you could introduce uh, unique restriction sites um, such that the plasmid would have uh, um, a limited number of sites and you could, because of the degeneracy of the genetic code, introduce or remove sites within the gene of interest. So if you wanted to make a mutant, you could just pop out uh, XHO1, BAMH1 <laughs> fragment, for example, make a 50 base pair synthetic duplex with your desired mutation and then pop it back in uh, to, the, to the gene. Which, which sounds, if, if you allow me to inter interrupt, which sounds really trivial now that you're, you're talking about it, but it was not because remember, it was 1986. Yeah, and it, it was 1986. We had to make our own ligase enzyme, which we one of us would do every couple of years and freeze down a bunch of wow. <laughs> tubes, keep those in the freezer. Um, yeah, things weren't, weren't kittable as they are now. There weren't kits for everything. But um, I don't want to totally date myself and talk about what I was doing 30 <laughs> years ago, but I, I did, I did, I have been working on GPCRs since um, 1985, which uh, is, I think is pretty impressive. I think so too. Let, let's go back just a little bit in time so that we can come, come back to, to the, to the present and to the future. So you're trained, you have, you're trained as a physician, and then you ended up doing a postdoc at MIT. How did that happen? What was the, uh, the element that caused you to get interested in, in lab work and in working at MIT? Yeah. Well, there's a story behind that. I, I can tell you, um, give you the highlights. Um, of course. I was, 
I was a chemistry major as an undergrad at University of Chicago, although um, I must say I wasn't a hardcore chemistry student. I ended up with a BA in chemistry, which sounds kind of weird, but um, I took a lot of humanities courses. I took four years of French, but um, I also loved being in the lab. Uh, and I, um, um, you know, so spent time on internships and part-time jobs in the lab trying to raise money to pay for things. And then I, I had this interesting opportunity where I applied for uh, jobs, for summer jobs in 1976. And I ended up getting a job offer. In those days, you used to get job offers in the mail. Um, you know, a letter arrived from the Food and Drug Administration said I've been accepted as an intern for the, for the summer. And so I, I went there and ended up working at a place called the Bureau of Biologics on the NIH campus, which is now the Center for um, Drug Evaluation. Mm -hmm. It's actually a lab a research lab-based um, agency within the FDA. And that was a fantastic experience. I worked with a, uh, a guy called Daryl Liu, and uh, my section chief was John Robbins. John Robbins went on to win Alaska Award. Daryl Liu had a very distinguished career um, in uh, protein biochemistry. And at the end of that summer, um, I was at University of Chicago as an undergrad. At the end of that summer, Daryl Liu um, said, you know what, I have a friend, an old friend at um, Chicago Biochemistry named Bob Heinrichson. And we were postdocs together at Rockefeller University. Um, in the 60s, we worked with Stein and Moore, the famous um, chemists who invented amino acid analysis. Uh, anyway, Bob's my best friend. I'm going to write him a note, and you can go talk to him and see if he'll um, let you work in his lab next summer or whenever. So I got back to Chicago um, after that summer. I had a great time in Daryl's lab, and I made lifelong friends there. Um, and, and by the way, I was working on uh, trying to isolate a membrane protein there in 1976. So... Uh, Bob Heinrichson, of course, uh, with that letter of introduction from Daryl Lou said, yeah, sure, you can work in the lab. And so from then on, basically from 1978 onward, um, I had a, a bench in Bob Heinrichson's lab in the biochemistry department at University of Chicago. And in those days, his lab was doing amino acid sequencing with the old spinning cup sequencing um, wow. machines before solid phase stuff. And so my job was to purify phospholipase A2 from snake venom and work on the team that was trying to do the amino acid sequence of that. So because of that project, I got to work with, uh, in addition to Bob, who's a fantastic scientist, I got to work with this famous peptide chemist called Tom Kaiser, who also ended up at Rockefeller. And I got to work with uh, a structural biologist called Paul Sigler. So using the material I purified, um, Paul Sigler eventually crystallized phospholipase A2, and I got to know Paul Sigler and get interested in structural biology, but it was all related to um, membranes because phospholipase A2 has this so-called interfacial recognition peptide that uh, allows it to bind to membranes to hydrolyze the phospholipids. Um, Meanwhile, I uh, was on a track to go to med school, so I just stayed at um, Chicago, went to med school, had a bench in Bob's lab the whole time, and turns out not only did I love being in the lab, but I love being in the hospital. So I was sort of... Uh, uh, torn? <laughs> torn between <laughs> but, two? Uh... Well, torn. I, I didn't feel torn because um, at Chicago, the hospital was right across the street from the lab. So I would be in the hospital, I'd go to the lab, I'd go home, I'd go to the lab, I'd go to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and so for those four years, um, you know, I, I tried to do some work, but I also had my med school responsibilities. But the problem was that all the time I was in med school, I felt like I was, and this was 78 to 82, 
I, f- I was following peripherally the revolution in molecular biology. And I was pretty well trained in protein biochemistry, but I was totally missing out on molecular biology cloning the whole DNA revolution. So um, I said, wow, when I finished med school, I obviously want to do a little bit of clinical training to get credentialed and get a license. But I also want to do some kind of a postdoc so I can learn molecular biology. I was committed to research. And then um, when med school finishes, you, you, know, you sort of choose a subspecialty. You don't know where you're going to be because there's this match system where you, you apply to places, uh, you rank them, they rank you. And then on a certain day in March, everyone finds out where they're going to be. And um, I got lucky somehow and ended up matching at Mass General Hospital in Boston for my medical residency. So in 1982, I moved to Boston. It was an intern at Mass General, but it was a very academic uh, group, you know, that class of 15 people at that time, a lot of future luminary scientists uh, in my class. And everyone was going to do some research type postdoc, almost everyone. So I immediately looked around Boston with the help of my uh, mentor from Chicago, Bob Heinrichson, and picked out a bunch of labs where I could contribute something in terms of membrane stuff, but also learn um, molecular biology. And I interviewed at five or six places. I won't say who. I, I was able to get accepted at every one for a postdoc, a sort of a traditional research postdoc after my three years of, um, of medical training. My original plan was to finish my medical training, do the postdoc, and then come back to the hospital to do subspecialty training. And my, um, medical, my medical department chair liked that idea, John Potts. He said, yeah, fine, come back, we'll hold space for you. I never went back to the hospital. <laughs> so, you know, things started going well in the lab. I, I ended up choosing Gobin's lab. It, it was kind of interesting. Um, everyone I talked to said, how long do you want to uh, do the postdoc? And I said, probably two years would be optimal. And, uh, and Gobin said, how long do you want to do the postdoc? I said, two years would be optimal. <laughs> he said, there's no way that two years is optimal. You, And he's the only one that really was honest. He said, you can't learn enough in two years. You, you'll just start learning what you have to learn, and then you won't be able to accomplish anything. I would say you should keep it open-ended, <laughs> you know, the open-ended postdoc philosophy. But that had some influence on me, and he said, yeah, don't worry, I'll support you, and you'll get something done. And I ended up going there, um, spending five years, never went back into the hospital, but things went well, and I found myself competitive for, you know, what would be called traditional um, basic science uh, tenure track faculty positions. So I ended up moving to Rockefeller, um, which, you know, serendipitously was the place that Daryl Liu and Bob Heinrichson always talked about when I was working in their labs uh, before. And uh, so that was kind of a amazing career turn. And then I got to Rockefeller and started my lab. It's a fantastic place to to be. And uh, I just pushed forward ever since. It is. And just just let me tell you how small the world is. I actually met John Potts um, (laughs) maybe two years ago. And we were talking and I mentioned, you know, I was in your lab. And he said, oh, of course, Tom. Of course, I know. I know Tom. (laughs) And I I thought, you know, it's it's just a small world uh, in in science. And even... Another story about Small World related to John Potts, I hadn't seen him for probably more than 10 years, you know. Uh, And then uh, three years ago, the year before the pandemic started, I was in Florence for a conference. uh, And I came down from my hotel to have an early breakfast. And John Potts is sitting in the (laughs) hotel dining room in Florence, Italy. I hadn't seen him for more than 10 years. And we had the greatest conversation there, getting caught up. Uh, What a great guy he is. Uh, Yes, it is a small world. It is, it is. So tell us us more about uh, your first encounter with what we now know as GPCRs and why did you continue working on on rhodopsin and how that evolved into other 
now known GPCRs. Yeah. So redopsin is a fascinating uh, story to work on. And um, I, I like spectroscopy, um, part, partly because of my previous training, but partly because of my early exposure to redopsin. Um, and we characterized redopsin function by regenerating the opsin APRO protein with 11 cis retinal, which is the chromophore, and then doing spectral studies on the, on the redopsin. And um, of course, rhodopsin is a special case GPCR because the chromophore is covalently bound, but the chromophore functions pharmacologically as, a, as an inverse agonist. So once you start uh, getting your head around that fact, there's a lot of interesting connections that you can make between rhodopsin and other GPCRs. But initially I was focused totally on rhodopsin and I became fascinated by the, the question of spectral tuning. And this question is basically revolves around the fact that all visual pigments in nature, essentially all, uh, use the same chromophore, 11 cis retinal, or essentially the same. There are a couple of variations in fish or insects, but mm -hmm. every living um, visual uh, system uses 11 cis retinal. Now, then you, you realize that vision is tetrachromatic, meaning that some animals have uh, more than one visual pigment that absorbs at a specific wavelength so that you can perceive wavelength-dependent information. But this visual system extends from the UV to the, to the far red. Um, humans have three pigments, uh, blue, red, and green. They all use lenses right now, but Insects have UV, some small mammals have UV, birds have you know, a wide-ranging visual system. They all use the same chromophore. So it's pretty obvious that the origin of that is explained by amino acid side chain interactions with the chromophore in the folded 7TM rhodopsins or iodopsins, which are the cone, pigment, uh, cone pigments. So the question is, it's a, immediately you can say, wow, I can learn something about this just by making mutations in the chromophore binding pocket and see what the effect is on the spectrum. So that was a first stab at learning some useful information about spectral tuning and about, indirectly, about what ligand binding pockets look like in GPCRs. Yeah. And of course, to really take this to the next level, um, we needed something other than just a UV visible absorption spectrum of a mutant. So I started developing um, micro and nanoscale analytical methods in the early 90s. I worked with uh, a great physical chemist, Rich Matthies at Berkeley to develop a resonance Raman system and had a great collaboration with Rich over about 15 years. I worked with the group in um, Germany, Fritz Siebert on a, a microscale FTIR method so we could get um, IR spectra of mutants. And between the IR and the Raman, which are complementary vibrational spectroscopy methods, we really were able to come up with the correct physical chemical explanation for how um, Ultimately, a gene sequence uh, determines uh, the UV vis spectrum of a visual pigment, and that that all of that work extended. You know, it sort of started in Gobin's lab, but extended for at least another ten years. Involved uh, cloning other visual pigments like UV pigments that we did work on. It involved the work of uh, Belinda Chang, the fantastic evolutionary biologist who's now at Toronto. Um, that um, involved ancestral reconstruction of, uh, of extinct pigment genes. Um, there's so many interesting things uh, in the visual system. And we still dabble with rhodopsin, I would say, and use it as a control, but still some interesting questions to address. But then in, uh, <clears throat> and I would say in the early 90s, we started thinking about whether we could use rhodopsin as a model for other receptors. And that came in, um, 
in a, in a computational approach, a postdoc named Steve Lin was really good at computational chemistry. And there were some early projection maps of rhodopsin from 2D cryo-electron microscopy, not 3D, but it was really a 2D, 2D process. Gebhard Schertler and Richard Henderson and, uh, uh, and others um, were doing that, and they produced these projection models. So the first question was, what could you learn from that? Secondly, did that projection model apply to other 7TM receptors? So we made a pretty good model of rhodopsin, um, a three-dimensional model that we could test with mutants because we could test with mutagenesis because we had made so many mutants and had such good spectroscopic methods. And then um, <clears throat> what happened was um, <laughs> it was against serendipity because uh, around 1996, um, I started getting calls from immunologists saying, uh, you know, there's this interesting observation in the HIV field that uh, this, the so-called co-receptor for HIV-1 is a chemokine receptor called CXCR4. It was then called Fusin. It was an orphan yep. receptor. Ed Berger at NIH figured that out. And then somebody else said, but CCR, CCR5 also is probably the primary, secondary. Um, <laughs> co-receptor. Co-receptor. Um, and um, we know a little bit about it, but and so I got so many calls uh, from people saying, you know, we don't know what these things are, immunologists, can you help us? And so we started collaborating with a couple of people and with uh, some companies at that time, early collaborations with industry. And we made models of CXCR, CXCR4 and CCR5 based on our knowledge of rhodopsin. And we um, were able to transition really from rhodopsin to other traditional family AGPCRs uh, through that mechanism. And we still work on um, chemokine receptors. And, you know, you did great work on CXCR3 um, recently. And then uh, the other thing, the other sort of thing that happened in parallel here at Rockefeller was that I started working with Bruce Merrifield, the late Bruce Merrifield, who invented uh, solid phase peptide synthesis. He, one of the peptides that he had synthesized um, earlier was glucagon. And so he was really the only lab at Rockefeller that was set up to do uh, GPCR assays in the traditional sense, you know, the old cyclic AMP stimulation yeah. assays <laughs> um, that you know about. Um, and so we attempted, we set out to clone the glucagon receptor, which hadn't been cloned. We got scooped on that, but we quickly made a synthetic glucagon receptor and then went forward with family B studies. Um, so we had sort of a family A, mainly with chemokine receptors, and then family B, mainly with glucagon. And all of those things just lead where they lead. And yeah. yeah. It's, it's important to, to say also that taking the rhodopsin and the information that you got from studying rhodopsin and applying it to other class A rhodopsin-like GPCRs is something that, if I remember correctly, wasn't done as often. And the structure of rhodopsin came out in 2000. So and we're talking before any structural data was, uh, was published, was known about rhodopsin. Yeah. Well, we were, we were using um, these rudimentary models um, that were informed by mutagenesis to, we really use those models to try to design experiments and create hypotheses um, before there was a crystal structure. The, the 2000 crystal structure of rhodopsin, which was from native um, uh, disc membrane rhodopsin from cows by Chris Palchewski and others was revolutionary in the entire field um, and really change things because then you could actually do what we were doing before only now have the actual crystal structure as your starting point instead of this projection model exactly. and that allowed us to um, finish up a lot of the stuff we started remarkably um, that so many things about that um, crystal structure were I would say were predicted it 
it was great to see the structure. There weren't that many surprises, frankly. <laughs> um, there were some surprises about how the the extracellular uh, loop folds back in and creates like a uh, a cap on the ligand binding pocket. A few other things that were very cool. But um, we had essentially been able to identify all of the residues in the in the binding pocket um, already, and we sort of knew how things fit together, and sort of knew the orientation of the of the ligand in the binding pocket. But it was just fantastic to have that structure. I guess the most surprising thing was that it took seven years late later until the beta receptor was yeah. uh, structure was solved. I was an undergrad when the um rhodopsin structure was solved and I spent an entire summer working in a lab and then I think maybe a year later I got to go to a um, Great Lakes GPCR retreat and I remember Chris Palchewski being invited and, and giving his talk and showing the structure and not young and naive as I was I didn't understand the importance of that first structure but yes you're right it, it took seven other years for to get another structure and now I feel like there are structures coming out every week. And of course the beta receptor structure, um, the helices lined up very nicely with the rhodopsin yeah. structure. And that led to an explosion of, uh, of, of structures. And then there of course was another lag. You might call it a lag or just the normal pace of uh, work in the technology until the um, the structure of the of the complex Brian Kobilka's famous yes. structure of the complex with the um, G protein uh, came out, and then a lot of these things are technology driven. And of course, now there are great technologies um, for cryo EM and for uh, you know the single the imaging reconstruction technologies and the cryo-EM technologies and the reconstitution in uh, nanodisks, NABs, SMALPs, uh, yes. you know, all the different technologies. Yeah. I, I will say that, um, you know, another thing that I'm pretty proud of that started from Redopsin and really has carried through is the, the strategies to solubilize receptors from the membranes for structural studies. We, we had to solubilize, um, you know, most people were, were using cells or membrane uh, preps from cells to do their pharmacological assays, you know, the second messenger assays. Yeah. Um, Bob, Bob Lefkowitz and a few other people were, had solubilized their receptors. That's some of his very early work, you know, to, to show that solubilized receptors bound the ligand and stuff like that. But we actually had to work out uh, details to solubilize um, the mutant um, rhodopsins. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I did with Roland Frankie was to use dodecylmaltoside. I think we were the first ones to, I know that dodecylmaltoside was out there and was being used for cytochromes and other, other things, but um, I think we were one of the first to use dodecylmaltoside for GPCRs. It turned out to be the perfect detergent for GPCRs, and essentially every single um, purification now uses G uses dodecylmaltoside. I remember when we um, we got the first samples from uh, Anatrace. I guess everyone probably has heard of Anatrace, the, the <laughs> yeah. company. We, we were <laughs> communicating with Anatrace when it was like three, three guys in a garage in Cleveland. <laughs> and um, we got a sample of, um, of dodecylmaltoside that we had to purify. So we use these big flash columns. And then we realized that, it, that, the, that the dodecylmaltoside had alpha and beta anomers that were, you know, contaminating each other. So we figured out how to purify those anomers and we characterized rhodopsin function in the alpha and the beta. And they wow. were the same, so we never published it. But we spent so much time working out the details <laughs> of using uh, the beta D dodecylmaltoside uh, as a detergent, which is still widely used today. 
It's it's so interesting because you mentioned the uh, the detergent, and I remember we were t- while I was in the lab, we were taking turns at making stocks of of DDM, and it's a pain <laughs> to make the stock. <laughs> but I think it was a rite of pas- passage for everyone who worked in the lab that they had to at least once in those in those couple of years to make stocks of of the detergent. Yeah. To, uh, <laughs> well, of course, it's a lot cheaper if you buy it in bulk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Make the stocks yourself and aliquot everything. Definitely, so you're you're mentioning the 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 detergent, but um, one one thing that I always found really interesting that there that was an available in the lab and that was developed in the lab is the uh, is the, uh, the not only purifying the receptor but also the nanobodies, mm-hmm. not the nanobodies, the uh, oh, the term. Nano discs. Yes, the nano discs yeah. and the technology behind that. How did you come up with the with the idea of, you know, enclosing the receptors in those nano discs and characterizing purified receptors? And I'm thinking specifically at the at the work done with by Carlos, Rico. Okay. Um, well, the there there are two parts to that, and I'll I'll correct this. The the nano disc. Um, Technology was really invented by Steve Sligar at University of Illinois, and uh, that that technology is based on the apolipoprotein in in serum that trans uh, transports phospholipids. So Steve Sligar sort of uh, reduced that to practice, and uh, we were one of the groups who was trying to get GPCRs into nano discs uh, early on. And uh, there were a couple of groups that did it. Um, uh, Brian Kobilka was using it. Dan Oprin was using it. Um, we, we decided uh, actually to not use the human version of the apolipoprotein, but um, what we did was once we figured out how the nano disc self-assembled, we reasoned that we should be able to make a better version of, uh, of this uh, so-called uh, scaffold protein, um, which is the monomer- monomeric version just uh, purified from E. coli or whatever. Um, and so we screened all of the genomic literature to find the perfect apolipoprotein. And it turned out that Based on our analysis, we thought the zebrafish version of, of this was better. So it hadn't been cloned. So Carlos, uh, a student in the lab, Carlos Rico, cloned out the zebrafish. And then we made a, uh, a version of nanodisks that we called NABs that were base, based on the zebrafish uh, version. It works great. And this technology is fantastic. And a lot of people are using it. People are doing structures in nano disks or, or nabs um, of uh, GPCRs and GPCR uh, G protein complexes. So that's, that's a nice story. But the purification uh, that most people are using, these affinity purifications, um, that was really a, a great innovation that Dan Oprian deserves uh, full credit for. Um, in Gobin's lab, Dan was able to work out the first immunoaffinity purification of of, a, of rhodopsin, um, and he used a monoclonal antibody called 1D4, which had been invented by Bob Mulday, who's at Vancouver. He just made a bunch of monoclonal antibodies against rhodopsin. One of them happened to have an epitope that was the C-terminal tail of the receptor, and Dan reasoned that he could um, put the antibody on beads, pull the rhodopsin out of, uh, you know, in detergent micelles uh, onto the beads, wash them, and then elute the receptor from the beads using a peptide that corresponded to the epitope, which yeah. should be possible because it's a monoclonal. Yeah. So Dan worked it out and it worked, worked beautifully. And uh, many people use 1D4. <clears throat> it's a perfect antibody for immunoaffinity purification. The epitope is known. It works on the C-terminal tail with a free carboxyl terminal amino acid. And um, people use 1D4 without knowing its history, without knowing uh, 
what went into it and that it was used really for rhodopsin before it was used for the other 300 GPCRs that it's been used for. I actually, I actually knew that because because of my time in the lab, and I, mm-hmm. um, I've aliquoted some of the one D four antibodies as well back in the day. <laughs> yeah, it's a great method, and Dan deserves a, a lot of credit. Every everyone who uses that strategy should really cite that early work. But uh, you know, as usual, people forget and they just uh, pass it along. Um, but it's. It's a great strategy. It works better than FLAG. It works better than HA. It works better than all the others. Agreed. Agreed. And then uh, the other question I I had for you. So we've talked a little bit about what type of projects you started working on moving from MIT to Rockefeller. um, And then uh, working on chemokine receptors as well. And then you moved on to more uh, computational work with some of the people who are in the lab and the ramp work specifically. Can you tell us how you got into working on, on ramps? Um, yeah, the, the ramp story, well, the ramp story goes back to the family B uh, interest okay. really working on glucan receptor and NGLP1. And then following the literature and seeing these uh, these, uh, you know, amazing accessory proteins that RAMP isn't the only accessory protein, but it's kind of an interesting one because yeah. it's a single spanner that has this uh, sort of chaperone function, gets receptors to the surface. Um, Steve Ford, um, <laughs> one of the great papers in the GPCR literature, the history of GPCR is that McClatchy Nature paper with Steve Ford. Um, and, you know, so it has chaperone function. It explains a lot of the weird biology of GPCRs, you know, how you can express a receptor in one cell and then, then express it in another type of cell, and it has apparently totally different uh, functions. Uh, could be because of RAMPs. And then the, it turns out that RAMPs also affect pharmacology. And... Um, also in the family B story, those papers are amazing. And even now we see the recent uh, very important monoclonal antibody drugs against um, receptor ramp complexes that are used to treat migraine. Um, it's, it's a great story. So we've been trying to uh, get, get back to that. But fundamentally, we've always been interested in protein-protein interactions and bilayers and what drove it. Um, we started to approach that both computationally and experimentally with Thomas Huber in the lab, uh, working with um, Michael Brown on some cool experiments showing that there are some physical properties of the membrane that affect uh, um, whether receptors aggregate. Then we started being curious about whether receptors uh, that form hetero dimers, two different receptors forming a dimer unit, whether there are protein determinants, there must be, what are they? Um, And we started again, applying this to the chemokine receptor um, question and very interesting and important heterodimer in that field is the CXCR4, CXCR7 uh, that you contributed a lot to. And um, then we, through Thomas Huber, um, we collaborated with uh, uh, Jan Seward Merrick, who's the guy that invented this um, fantastic uh, strategy or contributed to it uh, called coarse graining, where you could do relatively large complex um, um, systems in, in membranes, say a membrane, a, a reasonable membrane model and 12 receptors and simulate what happens. Um, And this coarse graining allowed us to do some really cool work um, using mainly rhodopsin again um, on figuring out what the principles are of self-association of receptors and bilayers. And that work is sort of still ongoing or was still interested in that subject. But we always have this... um, tension, I wouldn't say tension, but collaboration in the lab between the computational and experimental approaches. Yeah. And um, 
And of course, there is so much that can be done nowadays with BRAT uh, strategies um, yeah. to look at protein-protein interactions. Proteomics methods, although they're challenging with membrane proteins, are really coming online. You see work of Carol Robinson and others with mass spec of uh, you know, essentially native proteins. Um, and then you see proteomics methods like we're using with uh, these suspension beta ray systems where you can interrogate uh, hundreds of potential interactions all at the same time. So I think that we're at a point now where technology's driving um, a lot of the advancement and also miniaturization. So you don't need to have a lot of material anymore, even to do structural studies. Yeah, I think it's, it's really... The, the missing piece when it comes to interrogating receptors and receptor function, but also receptor uh, confirmation and you know, figuring out how many receptors are there in a complex mm -hmm. and how this, that complex drives function. Getting, yeah. being able to, to run assays in, in plates. And I say this oftentimes, and I think uh, Brian Roth and I were having this discussion during our podcast is the fact that he says he loves Brett, I love Brett too. And being able to having a robot and having a plate reader and just running plates and acquiring massive amounts of data and then having the computational component there to go through and analyze the data is, is what was missing. Mm -hmm. And I think now it, it kind of came together. Yeah. Yeah, of course, <laughs> Brad is fantastic. Um, many people love Brad. Brad doesn't always love those people because <laughs> because it takes it takes often a while to get it uh, yeah. get it to work get it up and running getting the ratios correct all that but the the new much brighter um, reagents that are available for yeah. for those uh, systems have really made it accessible to everyone uh, yeah. and uh, you know Brian's contributions have been fantastic michelle bouvier fantastic contributions yeah. and a lot of other people but it's it's really a transformative methodology I'm, I'm biased towards it i think it's just an easy way to to go about it but i have to admit depending on on which system you're looking at on which receptor sometimes it can be more 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 of a headache than anything else mm -hmm. well yeah it's yeah. science i think that's that's the price to pay for, uh, Every, everything's uh, everything's a challenge, but and but the, the goal is to create as much data as possible. So <laughs> exactly, so um, that's one way. Bread is certainly a miniaturizable uh, method uh, that uh, is very powerful to look at signaling. And you know the the other key point that's come out of work in the last decade from. Bob Lefkowitz and others. Of course, Bob um, Bob and arrestant signaling uh, has been a great uh, advance. The, we knew about arrestant signaling in the visual system before, and that's another thing that's analogous uh, in terms of what's happening at the receptor. There are a lot of similarities there. And um, so arrestant signaling is important, but the concept of signaling bias is really what's cool. But it does mean that you can't just rely on any one single assay because you have to consider G-protein signaling and arrestant signaling and, um, you know, who knows, other, what? Who knows what. Um, so you have to consider more than one pathway, but you can't just assay multiple different pathways in multiple different cell systems. You have to be able to really compare uh, in, a, in similar backgrounds. So uh, it's important. And we've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years working out um, strategies to be able to do expression level, cell surface expression, G-protein, uh, second messenger assays, and uh, arrest and recruitment assays all in the same cell under miniaturized uh, conditions. Um, and we've been interested in that because we've been working on a receptor that is um, constitutively activated in pathological states. And, you know, it's hard enough to do ligand activated signaling where you have a good dynamic range to work with. But if you're trying to, to measure signaling 
and uh, bias in constitutively activated receptors, it's even a bigger challenge because the dynamic range is, is much reduced. So is, that's what we've been focusing on. May I ask which receptor system are we, are we talking about? Oh, well, I, I think I know well, the answer like to that. But <laughs> I think I know oh, the answer. We got interested in, uh, in this receptor called CIS-LTR2. Um, there's a story, a long, sort of an interesting story behind it, but it's basically, um, um, it, it's long been known that uveal melanoma, which is an eye cancer, common eye cancer that's from the back of the eye, from the choroid, the pigmented part of the eye, or can arise in the iris, which is the anterior pigmented part of the eye, um, that this tumor is a melanoma, but it, it's, it has a very low mo mutational burden, unlike cutaneous melanoma. Yes. And the um, defective signaling pathway in uveal melanoma is always the GQG11 pathway. Yes. Most of the mutations in that are single mutations in GNAQ or GNA11 that activate uh, the alpha subunit of the G protein. So this was kind of a very interesting biology. But then we started working with collaborators of Sloan Kettering to see if, well, if the G protein is activated, is it possible you could find um, upstream GPCRs that couple to those that could be also activated and cause the same phenotype? Yeah. And we did. We found, uh, we found CIS-LTR2 in about not many, maybe three or four percent of all patients with uveal melanoma, they have um, a mutually exclusive mutation, meaning that these patients have an activating mutation in the receptor and not an activating mutation in the G protein, and the phenotype is essentially the same. And this receptor, CIS-LTR2, is a cysteinoleukotriene receptor, um, and uh, it has a very interesting mutation that we had noticed earlier in some of our work on rhodopsin um, and it's L129Q and the third transmembrane helix and it basically pries open the helices, uh, affects the NPXXY and causes the receptor to be activated. So that's cool but then you say to yourself uh, as we've just been talking about well if the receptor is activated and it's on the cell surface and it's signaling through the G protein, why doesn't it also recruit arrestin and get desensitized and internalized and turned off? Well, that's the interesting thing is that the mutation causes really a profound signaling bias. The mutation activates the G protein signaling but doesn't uh, recruit arrestin. So it's a fascinating story and uh, it it's a bona fide uh, oncogene and one of the first GPCR oncogenes. So we're very interested in this receptor. It turns out that 8% of all human tumors and databases have mutations in CIS-LTR2. It's like the second most mutated GPCR in, in any tumor databases. And um, so we're interested in devising ways to screen tumors for activated GPCRs. The idea being that GPCRs are, you know, druggable. We're all in this field in part because GPCRs are druggable. Shouldn't, shouldn't we be able to find drugs to turn off aberrantly activated receptors in cancer? Should be possible. So that's what we're interested in right now. In addition to just learning the pharmacology, learning about the pharmacology of this really fascinating receptor. It's interesting because uh, last year, I think the second or the third episode of the podcast with, was with Sylvia Goodkin, who also was interested in, in uveal melanoma, but from the GQG11 perspective. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought it was, and I had, well, I was in the lab when we when you guys started working on CISLTR2, and I kind of knew the story, but now I, we have both pieces together. So I now we, we can understand what are the two main components and driving components and mutually exclusive components of, of uveal melanoma? One of the great things about your podcast uh, idea is that um, you talk to different uh, people and they're telling the stories and you can see how this, all of these stories and the 
the story arcs of GPCR research um, interact. Um, you know, we we haven't collaborated uh, with Silvio, but we you know read everything now he does. We're interested in his work, and it's brought a whole new um, flavor to to the lab to work on something new. Yeah, and interestingly, you were we were talking about the ramp ramp story. I spoke to actually Steve Ford this week as uh, we recorded a podcast episode this week and we were talking about the story of the ramps and the uh, the the migraine model and uh, he had mentioned that once once they had cloned the ramps they shared the materials with uh, a bunch of scientists in academia and everyone he mentioned I've already spoken to name for example Debbie Hay yeah from New Zealand so it is really a small small world yeah yeah um it's true um and you know the the thing is that um science is is really i think the general public doesn't understand science we can see that in the age of covid where the public is having um trouble figuring out who to trust and who's an expert and who's not um and i think the public has this idea that science is a uh, is an in, impersonal type of a career but it, it turns out that uh, I don't find it to be that way at all. I mean, I, I organize my thinking about people in the field, not subjects necessarily, because in general, the best people in the field work on a lot of different things at the same time. They may be thematically related, but, yeah. you know, people are going to move around. The best people follow their interests. Um, and, and so you want to know what people are working on. And people have to communicate. We probably don't communicate well enough uh, to the general public. We're, we're used to teaching, um, you know, arcane subject matter and very technical yeah. things. But we should be able to explain what we do. We should be able to explain to an average person who can read um, read the newspaper, you know, why it's important to take a COVID vaccine and and yeah. what the science is behind it. It's not that complicated. Yeah, it's not. And I think um, I've seen on LinkedIn, I think there were a couple of images where someone took actually the time to make a table or figures and explain the whole process and the differences between the different vaccines developed by, by the different companies. And I thought it was such a great thing to have out there and just you know invite everyone to take a look mm-hmm. and better understand science and the science behind the vaccines. It was such an ominous moment when when the needle went into my arm and I thought thought to myself, I feel like it's just it was just a fraction of a second and -hmm. it was in. But then all the work that went into getting to that point is just unimaginable. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a there's some information gap. Uh, Of course, information is out there, but you can't expect the average person to. you know, read the papers and try yeah. to parse everything. And there's probably also a belief gap. Some people just don't believe that it's, that it's the right thing to do. So somehow information and beliefs have to, uh, have to be, um, re- you know, respected, but also yeah. we have to tell people what the facts are about these vaccines. Yeah. I, th- I think one of the issues is that there was too much information out there and yeah. it's not properly curated sometimes and you can read many things and if you don't have the scientific background or you know you don't know how accurate that information is then you cannot decide as a layperson does this make sense or not Mm -hmm. well i think people are also seeing science happening in real time which is not usually the way it happens um and that's disconcerting it's it's not a completely smooth linear pathway there's a lot of ups and downs as everyone who works in the lab knows about the (laughs) ups and downs and sometimes experiments don't work it doesn't mean that the that you know the the theory's wrong or that molecular biology doesn't work it just means that your experiment didn't work for whatever reason you have to keep going back to it and figuring out uh what uh, the underlying issues are. I always took it as a sign when if, if it were, if it was Friday and the experiment failed, that was the time to just close up everything and just go home and come back the week after. Sometimes <laughs> it's just not meant to be. 
it's always better to work harder when things are working and not when they're exactly. not working. <laughs> exactly. I think uh, what, what I learned uh, during those five years in the lab is uh, in, in your lab is making the difference between working hard and working smart and then trying to always work smart and not hard. But sometimes when when things are working well, when an experiment is working, do not you don't don't just don't stop, just go for it and acquire the data before anything happens. Mm -hmm. And if there yeah. is any misalignment of the stars that make the assay uh, <laughs> stop working. Well, you know, I have this uh, sort of uh, affinity for um, a results-only work environment, as I <laughs> as I say. I I don't really uh, take attendance or uh, you know push people to be in a certain place at a certain time, but. Uh, eventually it's nice to get some results it is which is i think which is one of the reasons why i really loved being in the lab because if i needed help you were there if i didn't need help and i could roll on my on my on my own i was free to roam the hallways anytime i wanted to and had access to all the instruments i needed and uh and the proximity i think that's one of the best things at rockefeller is that i used to live five minutes door to door from the lab which was a blessing and and a curse at the same time, but going into the lab on Sunday night for five minutes and being able also to to walk the dog while going to the lab, who was a lab member. <laughs> there were moments when, when he was very happy of me walking him. And then when he realized that actually we're going into do some work, then he wasn't so happy about it afterwards, but it was still it was still a luxury that I'm, I'm very yeah. happy to have been part well, of. I had a conversation with another postdoc, former postdoc recently, who was in the lab before you. You wouldn't have known who this person is, and I'm not going to blow her cover. But, <laughs> but she said, by the way, did, did, did you know where I was most of the time when I was a postdoc in your lab? I said, I mean, and she was extremely one of the most productive people ever to come through the lab. And I said, not really. I'm not sure what you what you mean. And she said, well, I became obsessed with New York and obsessed with, uh, um, you know, independent films. And I used to go to these film festivals, like for eight hours a day, you know, five <laughs> days a week. And I would come into the lab at 6 p.m. <laughs> I would be in the movie theater all day and come into the lab at six and well, I'd hardly ever see you, but uh, somehow it didn't matter. Still got, still got the work done. And she learned a, a lot about uh, avant-garde culture. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Two more questions, Tom. Uh, one is, well, I, I think we know the answer to that, but what's your favorite GPCR? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite GPCR is Redopsin. Um, I have an, a lot of uh, GPCRs on my hip parade, but that's got to be number one. And then the other question I had for you is, um, if you had to give advice to young scientists, junior scientists who want to contribute to the field, what would that be? Um, st uh, stay connected. Use use these uh, resources that I never have gotten very good at. Um, <laughs> but um, st uh, stay connected, and um, really find something that you're comfortable with and good at, and be an expert at. Become an expert at that. Learn everything you can about whatever that thing is, and then um, talk about it often, frequently, as much as possible. Promote your own work. Be a little bit more of a self-promoter than you think you should be, but in a nice way. And then uh, reserve some time to, um, you know, do other things that are relevant and, and related. That's not very good advice, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I, think, I think it is because... Uh, if if you're you're a PhD or you're you're a scientist, you have to have a special speci specialization. You have to know your your thing, but for that you have to explore and figure out what is it that excites you and yeah. what you love. And then if you want to be the expert, you just have to deep dive into that. Yeah, you you do have to be recognizable for something. <laughs> and um, hopefully it's the thing that you're um, most excited about working on. Um, yeah. You don't want to be recognized for um, 
something that your boss, that your former boss was interested in, or that you know your thesis advisor was interested in. You have to have some um, level of independence and make a mark for yourself. And then from that, you touch on a very important point. How do you? And maybe it's a tough question. How do you become independent? How do you figure out what question you should be asking to differentiate yourself from your former group, former group leader, and at the same time um, be successful? Because you mentioned uh, going into into Gobin Karana's lab and say, "Oh, I think two years should be a uh, should be it," and Gobin saying, "Well, no, <laughs> yeah. you need more than that." Yeah, well, this is the an important question. It depends on your career track and your aspirations, whether you're interested in academics or in, um, you know, more in, in industry or commercialism, whether it's biotech and entrepreneurial stuff or big pharma, for example. All those things have slightly different requirements. But I remember talking to Gobin when I was leaving the lab. Of course, I knew I was heading to an academic career and it's hard to become independent of a Nobel laureate with 20 postdocs who can work on anything they want. So mm -hmm. I was thinking maybe I should talk to him and have that conversation about what I should do now. And so I did. I went and said, go. And I was thinking maybe we could agree on something that I could work on for a while that I could work on myself. And maybe you wouldn't want to work on that. I have some ideas. <laughs> was, he said, no, absolutely not. Um, I'm not going to have this conversation with you. How about this? You can work on anything you want to work on, and I'll work on anything I want to work on. And uh, so I was like petrified that uh, whatever I worked on, he would be working on. Anyway, some, somehow there was divergence um, along the way, at least enough divergence that people thought that... Uh, I, I could work independently, but it's uh, it's it's a fraught question. <laughs> uh, I think nowadays uh, it might be a little bit easier because in the old days everyone was doing the same basic technique. Now there are many different strategies. You know, you could become an animal model of disease expert. You could become, um, you know. Um, MST expert, a bread expert. You could you could really become an expert at yep. some technical area. You could be a cryo M expert, whatever. That was harder to do in the past. So you have to be an expert at something to succeed. Agreed. Agreed. With this, uh, I want to thank you for your time, Tom. It was a great you. pleasure talking to you, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Best of luck. Thank you for joining us for this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. I'd like to thank our guests, as well as our team members, Attila Forrest, Shivani Sajdev, Alexa Drun, and Ines Pinero. We look forward to seeing you live at the Dr. GPCR Summit in September. Don't forget to visit drgpcr.com summit. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us testimonials at drgpcr.com testimonials. Another way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe. Mm -hmm.